I am from New Zealand, and you know, I've, I've been we've been going to Coastlands for about two years now, and you know, it's been good. Most of the time, I just sit here and heckle Chris, Chris, and don't really say much. Yeah, I am from New Zealand, and just a couple questions that I get asked a lot. I've been here for about seven years. Um, yes, I did used to ride a kangaroo to school as a child. Um, I also, my mother is a hobbit who does live in the Shire, and you know, my uncle is Gandalf. So only one of those is true, but I'll let you figure out which one of those is true. So we've been looking at the Beatitudes, and I would love to say that I like the Beatitudes, but I don't, you know, meekness, gentleness, that whole weeping, grieving thing from last week, hungering and thirsting, just, it's just not the funnest topic. But I thought we'd take a look at it, something kind of been on my heart a little bit about Let's step back and look at the Beatitudes in light of the biblical narrative as a whole. Um, I think, have any of you ever had a promise or felt like you had a promise from God that you thought was definitely from God? And this is a rhetorical question for you to hold on to throughout this time. You ever felt like God's given you a vision or a promise that you, you know, had some kind of confirmation that it was from God and you're kind of now sitting with that wondering how that's happening? I kind of wanted to look at that with a few biblical characters and see how the kind of Beatitudes are woven in, in through some of those guys. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to like blaze through some of these people really quickly. And if you, I hope you question my, what I'm saying and go back and research it because I think that's great. Don't ever take anything I say for, for the truth. Um, <laughs> only half of it's true. Um, so I think, yeah, Abraham... We're going to go through like five characters and just take a look at them. We're going to blow them real quick and then come back and take a second, take a second look at them. So the story of Abraham in a nutshell, you know, God appears to Abraham. He, you know, says, I'm going to give you a child, you know, leave where you're at, take your wife and your goats and whatever livestock you got and go to, this, go to a new land. I'm going to give you a new land and I'm going to give you a child. And at the time, he's 75 years old. So the dude's old and he's probably like pretty stoked on that promise. And so he heads off down the road and, you know, eventually, and here's the beauty of the, of the historical narrative that we have. You know, most of, most majority of the Bible is, is written in historical narrative literature, which is just story. You know, it tells you what happened. And I think with, with that kind of uh, literature, it doesn't always tell you what didn't happen. And I think the other thing we always hear about the Bible is that it's like an instruction manual for life. I tend to disagree with that just because sometimes it just, states what happened. It doesn't necessarily have moral judgments. Sometimes it just says that this is what happened and it doesn't say whether it was good or bad or right or wrong. It just is. So keep that in mind as we go through. So Abraham, we have, the, we have hindsight that we know that God fulfilled that promise. Eventually God gave him a son named him Isaac, yada yada, and now he is, Abraham is the father of faith. You look at the, you look at the faith of the Christian faith, Jews, Muslims, all call Abraham their father. You know, he's a hugely significant character throughout history because he, he is the father of faith. And uh, so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Promise, fulfillment, yay God. So Joseph, you know, young guy, God gives him this vision of, you know, wheat bowing down to him and moons and stars bowing down to him and Joseph's feeling pretty good that, you know, his brothers are going to bow down to him one day. And him and his youthful zeal uh, share that with his brothers who obviously... Uh, 
super excited to be told by their younger brother that they're all going to be bowing down to him. And so a bunch of circumstances happen, but luckily we have hindsight, and hindsight says that God did fulfill that, and eventually his brothers did come and bow down to him and ask for wheat and grain, and Joseph saved you know, the Egyptian empire from utter destruction, and a lot of us are familiar with that story. Next is David. I figured I'd get your help. What's the gist of David? What happened to him? He killed Goliath. He's good with a sling. He's a king. But, into, you know, but early on, before he became king, when he's just a little whippersnapper out doing whatever shepherd boys do, chasing sheep or something like that, he was told that he's going to be the king for no, just chosen for no apparent reason. He, they pretty much looked over all the brothers and were looking for this king. Turned out it was going to be David, to everybody's surprise. And so, again, hindsight says that he did become king and became the king of Judah and then Israel. And then, and yeah, he did a, major, a bunch of crazy things. Go read them. They're there. Uh, New Testament-wise, kind of just shuffling on through quickly, uh, Peter. So Peter is a pretty significant character in the Bible, one of Jesus' disciples. So he was definitely used by God very significantly. You know, you had a lot of, uh, you know, he's very close to Jesus. However, uh, very early on, you know, after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, Peter preaches to a huge crowd, and he says to them, you know, I'm going to read that, that uh, he, he preaches out to the crowd, and he says, In the last days I will pour my spirit upon all people, all my servants, men and women alike, they will prophesy. So he shares this, you know, paradigm-shifting idea that God isn't just for Abraham and the Jews, God is for everybody. That Jesus, through Jesus, we're all accepted. Whether it's even women are accepted by God. It's amazing. Yeah, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, everybody, regardless. And, and Peter preaches this message and thousands of people come to know God through that. It's, you know, it's hugely amazing. Um, and, and to emphasize that more, uh, Peter has this vision where the sheet comes down and it's full of like all these ant dirty animals that uh, he should never touch or, you know, that would make you unclean. And he, God sends all these animals and he says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And that was kind of like a precursor to a relationship he has with Cornelius that basically says that even Cornelius, who's a Gentile, is accepted by God, just like all these things that were unclean and now clean and are all accepted by God. So there's a, just an amazing... God used Peter amazingly to kind of open up what the mindset was of who's accepted by God, who wasn't accepted by God. So yeah, kind of a verse that he says at the end there after speaking with Cornelius, he says, I see clearly that God doesn't show partiality in every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. You know, for, for the Jews, that was like a, just a mind-blowing thing that even we still struggle with today of who, what's acceptable by God. Paul, other very significant character in the New Testament, pretty much the first half, almost about Jesus and Peter, and the second half mainly written by Paul, so he's, he's kind of a big deal. Um, a lot of people you might be familiar with, or if you're not familiar with, it's okay. Uh, he's on the road to Damascus. He's persecuting Christians. He's killing them. He's very zealous for Yahweh and following God and killing people to show how zealous he is. Um, but he has an encounter with Jesus, and, he, and he's, he's blinded. And, yeah, very significant event for Paul, and then, you know, it's spoken to him that, 
He says, go and do what I say, for Paul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to kings, as well as the people of Israel. So, you know, God used Paul to carry on from Peter to, you know, and as we know, again, hindsight, we read about Paul's four missionary journeys. He, tra- he traveled basically most of the known world throughout, you know, Europe and the Middle East and shared the, shared the gospel of God's acceptance beyond Judaism, and which really has formed the kind of bedrock of what our Christian faith is today. So that's, in a nutshell, you know, there's people all the way, New Testament, Old Testament, God's, you know, promises, God's fulfillment. But I think, uh, and the thing with the Bible, too, and we always write stuff down, we write down what happened. And so I guess I've read these stories a bunch of times, probably like a lot of you guys have read them a bunch of times, and they're exciting, they're fun, like, wow, God did this, and then he did that, and... I guess I've taken a lot of time lately to kind of wonder what happened in between those times. So, you know, we go back to Abraham and we look at him and, you know, that God promised that I'll make you the father of a great nation. However, it didn't just happen. You know, he, it goes through that he begins to have doubts. And I kind of like, <laughs> I think about like, you know, when, you first get, when he first gets that promise, how excited he probably would have been, you know, the, he probably... You know, it's very disappointing to not have a child, especially in that culture, even more than it is today, to not have a child. To have that promise from God, to have this huge revelation, he's probably super stoked. You know, and, and you can just imagine him with Sarah, like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know, how about we help God out with this promise? And probably the first year or so, she's probably, all right, Abraham. But you've got to think, year one, year two, year three, year four. Sarah's probably like, you know, Abraham, this is just not, it's not happening. And year five, year six, year seven, year eight, gets to year 11, and finally she's like, you know what, Abram, how about you just take Hagar and have a child with her? Totally weird for us, culturally kind of normal. But 11 years after this promise still hasn't happened. So they do. And Abraham has another child, and that's a whole other story. But it just kind of, I like to think, you know, what's going on through Abraham's mind every day? He has this huge revelation, this huge promise of God, the day in, day out, he's probably milking goats and doing whatever else you do as a Middle Eastern farmer. Um, but, you know, that, that day-to-day, I think we lose, we don't see that when we read the Bible. We get, it's just from one event to another to another. But it was 11 years before he even had his, his first child um, of Ishmael with Hagar. So then he continues on, life goes on. He continu- continues to have doubt. He's called the father of faith. Yeah, he's probably the most doubting person in the Bible. You know, he, time and time again, he, he questions God. He forgets his promise. He, you know, he lies about his wife. I, I was reading through again, like, I, I remember Abraham lied about uh, his wife and says that he was a sister because he's afraid that they're going to kill him because she's so beautiful at 80-something years old. But anyway... And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember doing it. I remember reading that. But he actually did it twice. Like, he did it right at the beginning, and then he did it again later on, like, the same kind of lie, like, yeah, yeah, she's my sister. Um, anyway, so he, he, for someone who we call the father of faith, he had a lot of doubts. But then finally, you kind of get through a bunch of crazy stories, and if you really want to have your mind blown by the Bible of what on earth is written in there, read about Sodom and Gomorrah and Melchizedek and... Lot and his daughters, and oh my gosh, I don't even want it. That's like can of worms. We don't even want to go there today. But anyway, finally, there, you know, it's the fulfillment of him getting Isaac is 25 years. You know, Abraham's 100 years old. That's a long time, you know. Like I'm Mr. Impatient, and 25 years, I can't. Yeah, I just, I kind of 
it's blown my mind lately, just thinking back and pondering like how long it really took, and and the sustaining of hope and the the hardness that that would have been in between that. Yeah, he probably he did. He gave up on hope. He gave up on that promise. He gave up on those things. But you know what? God kind of stormed through those despite despite him being an, a fool, despite him forgetting, despite him doubting. God still fulfilled that promise. But also, it's kind of a like at the end of that too, when you when kind of a cool thing, apart, you know, I kind of mocked him a little bit, but something that is neat about Abraham is when he does, you know, Isaac's 13 years old, they go to, uh, you know, he goes to sacrifice Isaac. When they go up, Abraham says, you know, I think it's kind of a crazy story, but when they go up, Abraham says that we will return. You know, I think very early on, from, from the get-go, maybe his faith, after finally having this promise fulfilled, maybe he does have enough faith that, yeah, whether he kills Isaac, whether God raises him from the dead, whether what it is, he has, he has, his faith has grown to the point where he, he can't say, we will come back. He says it before they even go up there. It's kind of cool. So Joseph, so yeah, Joseph and his 17-year-old deal shares this vision, which, you know, God gave him the vision. It wasn't a bad vision. It was probably an awesome vision. Did he share it in the most humble way? Probably not, you know, and his brother's obviously jealous with that, and, you know, they send him and they sell him into slavery, they false, you know, he's falsely accused of rape. He he's, shows that he's working hard and he's trying to do the right things, but he's he sits in prison, and you know, it's times like this that you know you think year one, all right, I'm going to be a faithful soldier of God and I'm going to serve all these prisoners. Year two, probably getting a little old. Year three, year four, year five, he's rotting away in jail basically. Um, he's in there 11 years. That he's trying to, you know, buy, you know, his his time of, you know, basically slavery and then imprisonment. It's 11 years that he's chilling out, waiting for God's promises to come. You know, there's just it's just not happening for him. And you know, it it sounds like this. I think about like if you think about a beatitude of of hungering and thirsting for justice, and you know, I kind of think that's where he builds that. You know, that's where someone like Joseph builds that character of. I, Someone who, yeah, he probably was innocent, and he's sitting in there and he's suffering. He's probably sitting in there really brewing on those kind of beatitudes of, of, of hungering and thirsting for justice. Um, so, yeah, finally, he gets a break. Some hope comes, and he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and the baker, and he correctly interprets their dreams, and he's like, hey, when you go tell Pharaoh, don't forget about me. And guess what? They forget about him for another two years. So think about that. You know, finally, a glimmer of hope. God gives me this vision again. You know, God, you know, God's with them. There's hope there. And then, you know what? It's another two years before they go, oh, yeah, we did forget about that guy. Yeah, Joseph, he could probably interpret your dream, but that's another two years. So all other things like 13 years that he's either a slave or in prison from the time he has this vision to the time that that vision's Still not fulfilled, but at least he's out of jail. So then he goes and interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he gets put in charge as the manager. And so then there's another seven years where he's the manager of prosperous times, and then another seven years of times where he where times are tough, and he's still the manager. But all up, it's like 27 years when his brothers come, and yeah, they do bow down to him, and they ask for his help basically in their humility. And, you know, read the story about how he reacts to that. He's a, he's a different person to what he was at 17 years old. But it's also, what's that, 27 years? 27 years of crazy 
all kinds of different experiences that, you know, I think I've played through that story like a ton of times and I've never recognized really the 27 years of, of all kinds of, you know, things that who knows really what he, what he went through. Uh, David, I don't really like David to be honest. It just, you know, he's just kind of a dork. He, I just, you know, you play characters that you relate to and ones you don't. I just, you know, he treats his wife bad. He's an adulterer. He's, he's like too bipolar. Maybe, yeah, I don't know what it is. But anyway, that's David. You know, he's like so extreme one way with, with you know, killing giants and all this kind of stuff. But then he just has such huge flaws in his character. He just, and rather than, but, you know, so yeah, he gets his vision very early on. And then as time goes on, you know, God continues to work on him, but it's not all rainbows and unicorns killing giants. There's tough times where he's, you know, persecuted by Paul for years. You know, that, keeping in mind that he's been told he's going to be the king. Now he's getting persecuted. He's getting chased. He's hiding out in caves. And eventually he does become king, but I kind of wanted to just flick to some of his psalms where, you know, I kind of, I guess I do like the contrast of him where, you know, he's killing giants. You know, imagine how freaking awesome he would feel. He'd feel amazing. But then... In the times of his persecution, you know, he, he writes stuff like this when he's hanging out in the cave. He says, The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those who are crushed in spirit. And, and I guess I, that is the part of David that I do like. Is the, he is crushed. He goes from being, you know, this whatever down to this being crushed type of person. And, and, uh, and I think that is... I do like reading the Psalms, and they're an exciting a, a part of David that I think is, is amazing. And then, even after he becomes king, he then gets comfortable, and he forgets, and he wanders, and he sees a good-looking lady on the roof hanging out, and he ends up, you know, sleeping with her, killing, his, killing her wife, and all kinds of crazy stuff that you wouldn't expect from God's chosen leader, but that is what it is, and that's, again, it's it's what's written. It's not pretty, it's not nice, it's not great, but it is what it is. And, you know, kind of a, the psalm that he wrote after, after doing that and being confronted. And not only that, he didn't just do those things, he lied about it too. Nathan comes to him and is like, hey, there's this horrible guy. And Nathan, David's like, yeah, let's kill him. And then it turns out that he's that horrible guy that David wants to kill. And in that, he has a, you know, a break, a, a break in his spirit. And, you know, he writes Psalm 51, which says, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. And, and it just shows kind of some of the huge swings in, in, in uh, David's journey with God. Uh, so Peter, I do like Peter. I don't know. He, he's, I like Peter just because he's such a dork, you know, just like... like Right, here's the thing, like, he walked on water. Who else got to do that? Nobody. Everyone's sitting in the boat. Everyone's criticizing Peter for being a, you know, but no one else got to walk on the water. And yeah, sure, he fell in the water. And everyone's like, oh, he doubted and he fell in the water. Yeah, but no one even had enough faith to even step on the water, let alone doubting to fall in the water. I think he's pretty cool. But anyway, so uh, Jesus himself calls Peter the rock of the church. So he's obviously an upright, fantastic person. Um... However, not long after, Jesus, uh, he denies even knowing Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. And then, so quickly after, 
He does. He preaches to a huge crowd, and God uses him, even though he like just denied Jesus three times. You know, a couple weeks later, he's out there preaching, and you know, God uses him to you know open the eyes of thousands of people. Uh, he then, you know, shoot, he has that vision of the animals coming down and, and the, the expansion of that with Cornelius and seeing all the people that are embraced into the, into the church, into the, you know, the kingdom of God. That, you know, there, there aren't restrictions on who's in and who's out. You're all in. And, uh, you know, he says himself that I see clearly that God doesn't show partiality. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. But even, even though having all those experiences of God's, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God using Peter powerfully, even later, like in Galatians, when Paul's more on the scene, he, he kind of rebukes Peter for being a dork because Peter's hanging out and he's you know, eating with everybody and then some Jews turn up and then so Peter's like, oh yeah, I'm just going like, to eat with the Jews. And, and he falls back into this, his cultural mindset that he's had for years despite the amazing miracles that he's seen and, and, and experienced. And, but that's Peter. He's still, still he's a character. Uh, Paul. So, but I guess the, the, the thing with Peter, it, it, it's his whole life. His whole life is like up and down over a long, long period of time where he's, he's all in for Jesus, and he, but then he also does some of the craziest stuff ever. Um, so Paul, he, he's pretty, he had all the background of being a great, you know, pastor, evangelist, whatever you want to name him. And he had all the upbringing. He was a Pharisee. He had all the knowledge. He had the education. He had all the things. He had all the right things to make him set up to be the person that he became. Um, you know, he had that vision. It changes his life. And straight away, he goes and he, goes, he starts preaching. And he says, you know, basically does a 180 and says, you know, yeah, I'm going to go from killing all these Christians to... Now I'm, I'm one of them, and I'm going to start sharing that with everybody, and he's pretty excited right off the bat. However, this is like, it doesn't really show this. You read Acts, and it's just like, Acts is exactly that. Acts, action, 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 action. And it doesn't really show any time in between. And so the reality is he gets converted, he starts sharing. Everyone's kind of afraid of him still. They're very reluctant. The church, they don't, the apostles, they don't accept him. They reject him. They don't. They don't embrace Paul and go, welcome into the fold, buddy. You're, you're one of us. They don't. They're very reluctant and they're kind of, uh, they reluctantly send him to Tarsus, which is his hometown. You know, and they, they send him there. They're like, you, you go off to Tarsus and he's there for like over seven years that he's in his hometown. And I, I kind of like to think of that for Paul. He's jealous. He's got all the knowledge. He's got everything. Yet yeah, he's, he's rejected by the people that he's trying to be a part of now. And I, I kind of like to go to think, like, what did he do? He goes back home to his hometown. What did he do? He probably went to the synagogue and taught some stuff, but in reality, he probably went back and made tents again, or, you know, there's years, year after year after year. What did he do? He probably rethought his theology. He weighed up what he knew in the past with his vision of what, you know, Jesus gave him. He probably stitched together tents because that was his trade year after year, and, and formed his theology and, and, and kind of tried to marry up what his experiences were until eventually Barnabas then goes and gets him and, and does embrace him as part, of the, as part of the church. And then, yeah, from there they go out and do some amazing journeys. But there's a significant amount of time there that despite his qualifications and his conversion, he's sitting on the sidelines, chilling, kind of just forming his theology and... and uh, 
You know, I would say he probably learned some meekness in there, probably. So I, I guess like uh, I kind of put that verse at the bottom about Corinthians. Like I like that. I love First Corinthians 13, where it talk, it, Paul talks about love. You know, he he has every right and every qualification that any Christian or leader could have. He was educated. He had the theological background. But he, he says that if he doesn't love others, he would be of no value whatsoever. And I think that's some of, one of the beauty of Paul, is that he's, he's got it all. On paper, he's like Christian teaching, but you know, even, even he counts that as, he counts all that as nothing, if he doesn't love. And you know, I think, I would say, to go from being a zealous killer to being someone that can say, because he's doing that out of his righteousness, out of his zeal for God. He loves God. He's going to kill everyone that's opposed to God. That's great zeal. But to transform from that to someone who, hey, all my background I count as nothing except for if I didn't love others. You know? It's kind of cool. So I kind of go through all these characters and I'm a little bit comical about them. But I kind of... The reality is I'm not here to beat them up because I don't think it's about them. I think we read these historical narratives and it's easy to get stuck on the character and think about what they did and what they didn't do and how God used them and how they must have been great people because God used them. And in reality, they weren't. They all had flaws in their character. They all had things that they struggled with. They had their vices. They had their things that they were good at. They had their youthful zeal that was still, you know, was youthful zeal that needed to be redirected. And I, I think all of them would say it wasn't about them. You know, ultimately, we read through the Bible, and it's ultimately about God. It may not be saying God said this, and God did that, and God did this, and God did that, but throughout those times, whether they're getting visions or whether they're sitting making tents, you know, God, God is in all of that. You know, whether they're the, you know, when Joseph's in prison, was God just with Joseph when he gave him the vision, and when he got out of, no, God's probably with him every day. You know, the day in, the day out, the year in, the year out, the boring, the mundane, whatever it was, you know, it, it's in those kind of maybe lower times that, you know, that God is still there and God is working in, in them. And kind of what I like about all of their stories is that, you know, it talks about, you know, how God works. I think we all want to put God in a box and God does this and God doesn't do that. I think you read the Bible, I think it blows your mind. God talks to a donkey. You know, I don't think we can put God in a box and what God does and what God doesn't. With these guys, he wasn't limited by their humanity. He wasn't limited by their choices. In fact, he worked despite their humanity and despite their choices. You know, Abraham chooses to have another kid with someone else. Did God yank away his promise? No. He said, you know what? I'm not only going to fulfill my promise, I'm going to build on that promise. And, and he did. You know, I think it's, there's amazing power in that. And... You know, they all had their, their doubts, their fears, their forgetfulness, their pride, their own strength, their cultural norms. God, God worked throughout all those things, despite those things. He worked with those things. And, you know, I, I think a lot of our, maybe our theology is, is formed by a misconception of God. You know, although we live in 2016, we still have, you know, tribal elements of God where we where we view God as, you know, if I do good, then God's going to use me, and God's going to bless me, and God's going to, you know, take care of me. But I don't think that that's what the biblical narrative talks about God. God is a God of love and grace and, and mercy who uses 
none of those guys are perfect. They, every single one of them blew it. You know, and, and I'm thankful for that. that it, the Bible it doesn't sugarcoat it. Those guys are read it. You know, they they were human beings, and and God used them anyway. And I kind of yeah, when we think about God and His character and what He's like, I like to. I joke with uh, my friend Brian a little bit about God being the genie God. You know, we we pull him out when we're in trouble. You know, when we're when we're when we're in trouble, we you know, rub the lamp and hopefully ooh, God comes out and saves the day. So you know, I, I just want to yeah think about and question like where are we? What's our view of God and and how does that form our theology? Is it is it shaped through the biblical narrative or is it shaped through our culture or what is it that we uh, see about God and I kind of find it kind of ironic because I pulled this verse like ages ago, but I think about the rain out there now. It's beautiful, right? It's refreshing. It's, you know, it, it, all of us love it right now. And, you know, a verse in Matthew 5 uh, says that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. You know, he didn't just rain on you because you're good today and he missed out the rain on the people that were bad today. God, God gives his gifts regardless. Be good, bad, ugly, whatever. You know, that, that's the kind of God that we serve, that the God that chooses to use people, whether they're good, they're bad, whether they make the right decisions or whether they don't make the right decisions. I think God is a, a gracious, loving God. So I got this picture. It's hard to see a little bit, but my son's there. We're on, like, the top of Madonna Mountain. We like to, you know, hike around in the area. And, uh, you know, he's, he's at the top, and he's all pumped and stoked, and, and, you know, that's the kind of photo that if I did any social media, you know, you post that because it's like, look at me, I'm super dad, hiking with my kids, everything looks great, you know, we made it to the top of the mountain, like, you know, hashtag best dad in the world type thing. Uh, but I don't know any of that stuff, and I was lucky to even upload a photo. But, um, <laughs> but do you know what I don't take photos of and keep photos of? Is like the 20 minutes before that when he's like, ah, can you carry me? I don't want to do it, you know, all, the, all those times, like, do we really have to hike to the top, you know, we didn't take photos of that stuff, we, didn't re- we don't want to remember that, we didn't post that on Facebook, like, crying, whining kid, halfway up Madonna Mountain, like, you know, <laughs> we didn't do that, this is the image we portray, yay, yeah, look at me, I'm great, you know, and, and I kind of, I think it's what we read sometimes when we read the Bible. Is we, you know, we read the David and Goliath story of the, ah! But, you know, there's so much more depth and beauty in the biblical narrative than, than that. And I think it's great to celebrate the mountaintop vision experiences, and, and I definitely would be one to say, if you have those experiences, cling on to those with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, because you'll need those to get through some of the valley times. You know, you'll need that on the journey to get to the top of the next mountain, you know, it's, but it's in those kind of valley times that aren't super exciting and super fun that, you know, we grow, we, we learn the Beatitudes, we learn how to love, we learn how to be merciful and gracious, the fruit of the Spirit grows in us, you know, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't, I don't think those things grow at the mountaintop. They don't grow when you're killing a giant. Those things grow when you're in a cave, um, you know, and I guess that's the thing, like, no one wants to, like, when I mentioned at the beginning, I don't really like the attitudes, it's because no one likes suffering, no one likes hard times, no one likes those experiences, but it's, it's in reality, it's, it's those experiences that 
transform the good things in our lives. You know, and that's where I believe we see king, the kingdom of God on earth. Isn't you know, I, I don't have people going, oh wow, Carl, look at your family. You guys look great. Uh, what's the secret? Is it Jesus? No, I, I think from my personal experience, a way that I'm not a big evangelist. I don't get out there. Actually, back in the day in Wyoming, they made us do door knocking one time. Oh my gosh, it was like the worst experience of my life. So, but you know what? Where I have seen the kingdom of God in people's lives and where it's genuine is in the hard times when you know someone's died, when someone's lost a job, when it's in those times that I believe that the kingdom of God is. You know, and, I, and that's where we have true relationship and true community is when it's when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it's challenging, you know, and I'm not saying not to celebrate the great times, but you know what, I think there's greater depth and greater, greater, uh, there's more in the valley than there is in the, in the mountaintop. You know, it's, it's, it's in those times that we realize our need for him and we mourn for others, that we're gentle and lowly, that we're hungry and thirsty, that we learn mercy, that we, you know, we learn purity and we work for peace, you know, it's in those challenging times that, we, we learn and we grow and we change. So, I guess I just wanted to kind of seek out about my motivation for doing this. So, you know, Chris mentioned a little bit about my background. For a little, I'm not here very often. Typically, I'm working most Sundays. I get like one Sunday off a month. And I work in business. And, but yeah, I've done that for the last 10 years. But before that, in a previous life, uh, I, when we were back, living back in New Zealand for about five years, I was either involved in YWAM or I worked for a church for three years, um, and I studied a lot of theology, and it almost seems like a whole different world away, but I think uh, my motivation for being here today really is because I, I still believe, you know, I still... I work in business, but you know I've had I've had Christians, I've had different people. You know, you make judgments about what about different circumstances, but I think I'm here today because I want to. There's a lot of great people here. You know, I think I was I can say stuff that Chris can't say, and uh, I think you know I work for a church, and really when I worked for a church, I wanted to change church. I didn't like church, and I the, my motivation for working at church is because I wanted to change it because I didn't like my experience of church, and. I think I went there and, you know, there was, I had some great experiences and I met some great people and, you know, it was a, again, it was a different learning experience, but I think what I like, I think I see a great uh, strength here is that there's a bunch of people that are burnt, that are fried, that are crispy, that are, you know, they've had some, they're hiding in caves, they're, had some tough times, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's not only, that's a fantastic thing. Because, you know, we're willing to be humble. We're willing to listen to each other. You know, as soon as we think we're right, we're wrong. And, and I think that's what I kind of love about this church is that we can, there are a ton of people with a ton of ministry experience and a ton of, you know, with great hearts and really an amazing uh, background of what God's doing in their lives. And I want to see, you know, I don't want to just sit here and heckle Chris every week. I want to encourage all of us because I, I, I think church, if we're depending on Chris to help grow this church, then we're in dire straits. You know? Honestly, you know, and, and I say that with the utmost love and respect for Chris, but, you know, if, if, we're, if we're looking to a pastor of this church 
or, or any church. That's not the church. The church, we are the church, you know, and that's not up to one person. You know, I think that's what I'm, I guess I'm inspired by, is yeah, I've got to get off my butt and share what I can share and do what I can do. And I think uh, my, I don't want to change church anymore. I think my heart has changed over years that I love that I disagree with Brandon, you know? I love that I can sit here and me and him can, we have some theological debates, but that's what makes it church, is I don't go running off because I don't, because I disagree with Brandon. I talk with Brandon and we debate it and we give each other a hug and we pray for each other, you know? That's, that's a church, you know? And, and I think that's what I would call upon all of us here is, you know, we've got all, all of our differences, like, I got my things, that, like, we're so late as a church, and oh my gosh, it drives me crazy, seriously, but I still turn up every week, and I'm not going to, like, not come because everyone is freaking late. To me, that's a personal, <laughs> you know, that's a personal thing that I can just, doesn't really matter? No, it doesn't really matter. Is it really important to me? Yeah, but it doesn't. It's not important enough for me to just blow blow you all off because that that that's the, that's the per, that's not the point, you know. And and I think it's it's in our differences and it's in our struggles and our hard times and our. I think that's church, you know. It's whether, yeah, we lost a job, we got divorced, our kids are sick, we're changing dirty diapers, we're going to work our boring job every day after day after day, whatever it is, you know, God is in all that. God's not, you know, it may not feel like an exciting vision time, but you know what? God's in all that. God's working in that. God's using that. And, you know, I think uh, I heard someone mention, like, uh, to just over here earlier this morning about God, you know, whether you're a business person or whatever it is, you're a child of God. And, I think, you know, if I'm going to get personal, I, uh, it's taken me to become a business person to accept that I'm a, a child of God, you know. I've been a youth pastor. I have a degree in theology. I zealously flew around the world chasing missionary adventures and didn't feel like a child of God. And that's, you know, I wasn't accepted by God. I wasn't loved by God because of my background, I struggled to grasp that. But you know what? Having a child has taught me that I'm a child. You know, that it's not, you know, I watch, the best part I love about my kids is like they're, they do all their things. They're eight and ten. I get home like pretty late sometimes at work and at like 12 o'clock at night. And my favorite time is like then when they're all sleeping. I like go in. <laughs> I go in and I, I watch my son and I watch him sleep. And, and I hear God say, what more could he do right now to make you love him more? Nothing. You know, and, that, and that's been a personal journey for me that hasn't happened on a mountain. It's happened on a 12 o'clock at night by myself, looking at my son in his bed. You know, that, that that's, you know, some of those powerful things, some of those deeper things aren't always at the mountains, but they're in the valleys. And I guess I wanted to just kind of cut it off and, and invite you guys to, whether you're on a mountaintop experience, if you're there right now, Awesome. Praise God. Write it down. Take a photo of it. You know, do whatever you want to remember that. And for those that aren't in that period, fantastic. Because it's God's work in it.